back to a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show because we've invited to uh, speak about his latest book, Stephen Dynan, who is very well known for being the founder and CEO of the Shift Network, and he is uh, just uh, recently released a book called Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission and Service <laughs> to All, with a forward by Marianne Williamson, who interestingly wrote, ran for Congress in California in this last election cycle, the prior one. And uh, A Better World was an advocate of her candidacy and had her on to discuss it as well. Well, you all know that we spend a fair amount of time discussing the subject of enlightened, of conscious politics, of bringing wisdom and heart into the body politic and um, humanizing it in a way that it really hasn't been humanized in a long time. Well, I've got to say that Stephen Dynan, in his work, very optimistic work, really takes a fresh look at the subject, uh, this rather painful subject, in fact, in so many ways, because there have been so many wounds around the subject of politics, so much so that many people don't even want to discuss governance as the way things mm -hmm. are and have been for, well, honestly, decades. So it will be another chance for all of you and me to learn again about what, let's say, the possibilities are if we were able to educate people to align them according to certain fundamental human values, not just American values, but you could say universal values of humanity. And Stephen has done that rather brilliantly in his book, Sacred America, Sacred World. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit more about Stephen. He's got a really very impressive uh, resume here. He uh, founded the Shift Network in 2010, which has served over 700,000 people worldwide with customers in over 150 countries. It delivers virtual summits. Many of you have probably used the Shift Network and have taken uh, classes there, seminars, teleseminars, etc. And the subjects uh, run the gamut as well as do the trainings of spirituality, peace, holistic health, psychology, parenting, enlightened business, shamanism, indigenous wisdom, sustainability, and many others. Stephen himself is a graduate of Stanford University in Human Biology and the California Institute of Integral Studies, East-West Psychology. He helped to create and direct the Esalen Institute Center for Theory and Research, a think tank for leading scholars, researchers, and teachers to explore human potential frontiers. As the former director of membership and marketing at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, he was the driving force behind the Shift in Action program and the One Minute Shift Media series. His resume goes on and on. It really does. It's very impressive. And, uh, it's so funny. It's also uh, um, strikingly uh, similar to much of my own, and I'm very pleased to have Stephen on the air with me today to discuss things that are very dear to both of our hearts. So, Stephen Dynan, uh, welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Well, what a pleasure. It's good to discover another brother in the in the larger work. Indeed, absolutely. The alignments are too much to go into here, but it's it's fun and funny and uh, we'll go over it from the Institute of Noetic Sciences 
all the way through. It's uh, it's beautiful. And uh, I'm so glad, Stephen, that there's someone else in our larger community who is so, so attuned to the political consciousness, the political story of our country and our planet, actually. And I'm, I'm so pleased to hear this because even though we met a couple of years ago and we had you on uh, during the Mayan calendar 2012 uh, roundtable, uh, we really didn't have a chance to speak much offline about various things that have been occupying our minds and our hearts. So this is a moment when I really look forward to hearing more about what you've been up to and uh, what you're into. So could you lay out to start um, some of the foundational points that you were looking to convey in your wonderful book, mm-hmm. Sacred America, Sacred World? Well, first of all, I, I, I named it Sacred America, Sacred World, uh, and very intentionally because we de- do need to bring together the spiritual and the political in a new synthesis. And too often these worlds have been separate, much to our, to our detriment. I mean, I do believe in the ch- separation of church and state, but there's something deeper when you bring a spiritual perspective on higher principles, universal principles that are embedded in a country and, and really activating a higher mission. Otherwise, you end up just devolving to my self-interest and your self-interest, and you're all compromising, rather than working yeah. together towards something really grand and glorious. And I think yeah, America like you could say for a very enlightened society or something of that sort. You know? Yeah, I think we were very much created to demonstrate what an enlightened society looked like, and so we were drawing from, you know, philosophical roots in in Europe, but also esoteric streams like Masonic, uh, the people in the Masonic orders. And also things like the, uh, the Native American people, the Iroquois Confederation was a template for American democracy, more so than anything out of Europe. So we already had this kind of uh, deeper template that we were creating and encoded with a lot of higher principles. Liberty, equality, and justice for all are, are higher principles for all of humanity. And if you look at our motto, like e pluribus unum, out of many one, that, that phrase itself packs so much meaning in. It's saying that we, to, to fulfill our mission, it really is about, about balancing unity and diversity out of many one. It's like, and when we balance unity and diversity, when we have this higher ground that connects us, when we're, when we're sourced in our oneness, then, then our diversity becomes productive and creative. It's an engine of innovation. But if we're, really, if we're really all focused on our separation, like we're trending to now, where we've got red, you know, essentially a red America and blue America at war with each other, and to some extent we've got the Occupy the 99%, the lower you know, classes at war with the billionaire class, and we've got racial divides, and we're really starting to fracture and fragment and break down which can be really disheartening and really painful to witness. And, you know, there's some real human tragedies going on. But I think yeah. what we have to remember is that these, these breakdowns can precede a breakthrough. And that's what we have to remember, that there, that there is a higher option. We've always, we've always eventually found our way there as a nation, even if it's painful for a time, even if there's some real breakdowns. But we eventually find our way to a higher order synthesis and the expression of a more perfect union. You can't have a perfect union. You can have a more perfect union. And each stage of the development of America, we take it to another level. Mm-hmm. Well put. Uh, I think it's a very important point that you make that the undergirding of our country in the very first place was sort of an esoteric spirituality. The imprint mm-hmm. you referred to of the Masonic teachings, uh, which is, uh, of course, you know, Scottish and British and European, um, was a membership that our founding fathers 
we're parts of. And uh, yeah, you I mean, know, George it Washington shows up in the dollar bill. And it shows up. Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. George Washington was sworn in on a Masonic Bible. They, Washington, yeah. D.C. was laid out with principles of sacred geometry. It's, exactly. you know, there, was, there was a deeply esoteric part of the whole creation of our country. And, and then we've taken that on and we sometimes forget it. Exactly. And then, you know, you made a wonderful and appropriate reference to the influence of the native people in particular, the Iroquois, and uh, their way of the, the long table and the fundamentals of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were sourced right there by Benjamin Franklin, who learned Mohawk, and Thomas Jefferson, who I think was at least conversant in it, and they spent a fair amount of time um, at the knees, if you will, of these native peoples, of these indigenous peoples, learning the principles by which they ruled their nations, and they imported it. You know, the, I don't want to call yeah. it the first theft. <laughs> it was probably the second theft. But, well, you know, the that's a good theft. <laughs> which, I mean, the intention was that it was a really good thing. The, the only problem was yes, they forgot was. one piece, which was the gender balance. And exactly. the Iroquois the had, a, had a great system where the women would essentially uh, nominate and elect and uh, install the sachems who made the decisions. But if they weren't yeah. doing a good job for the tribe, the women could pull, pull them out as well. And they also set the agenda. So... So the women kind of had a check on the power of the men, and that without that check, we've ended up with a like a hyper-masculine, very uh, warlike political culture that's high on on competition and combat and low on synergy and collaboration a lot of times. And that, and that part of that is a reflection of the lack of gender balance in in our history, which we're now in the process of slowly rectifying. But it's uh, it's something that we do need to mature because to really create a peaceful, successful and healthy culture. Ultimately, you want to have a balance of masculine and feminine where both are honored. Absolutely. And yet, you know, on one hand, you're outlining the, the spiritual foundations, and the spiritual foundations were not, despite the Christian rites, with all due respect, um, assertion that it was set up as, this was set up as a Christian nation. It was not set up as a Christian nation. There was a very definitive constitutional separation between church and state, as you said at the beginning. Uh, but there's a distinction that needs to be made, and for us, it's, you know, for you and me, it's, 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 it's very simple, like water off a duck's back. But for many people, there is still a confusion between religious and spiritual, and we're not talking about religious, i.e. institutional, but rather spiritual, which is from someone's heart, where the body, you could say, is the temple. It doesn't have to do with any kind of externalized affiliation or institutionalization. So mm -hmm. with that as the base of our country, yeah, it's more it universalized too, just to kind of build on Please. Yeah, just to build on that, it's like you can Please. be very spiritual within a religious tradition. You're just creating space for everybody's spiritual expression. And that the founder saw that was so important because you really squash innovation and creativity and the and the human spirit really when you when you impose a value like a set of belief systems on everybody. Because it's, it's it's we need the differences. We need the uh, the full flow of new ideas and perspectives to really maximize evolution. And so the secret sauce of America is to create the space for the maximum diversity, as long as we can keep it all held together and be the United States. You know, we've almost got torn apart with the Civil War. We're almost getting 
torn apart now by a, a new kind of civil war between Democrats and Republicans. And yes. so if we forget the unity principle at the core, if we forget the oneness, if we forget the unum, that's when we can yeah. really start to get in trouble. But what part of our genius is to create the space for maximum diversity that allows creative novelty. And so that's how we can integrate people from around the world and cultures and ideas and why we have Silicon Valley and media, because we're an engine of innovation that ha- that is based on being able to hold together and hold the space for a lot of diversity of viewpoints. Absolutely. And I, I want to bring in another uh, point here that on one hand, we tend to glorify the past and say, oh my, at the time of the founding fathers, there was a vision of America that was wholly in the, um, you know, in the esoteric, <laughs> spiritual sense, and uh, beautiful, and it stood for freedom and liberty and a pursuit of happiness and what we call these, you know, rather virtuous tenets. But at the same time, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, Stephen, as you scrutinize some of the founding texts and documents, you see that it was even then very much about the privilege, white privilege at that, of the the landowner and how that has continued to this day into something you talk about in the book, uh, the the Occupy movement. Could you comment on how you see those kind of two rather diverse strains? On one hand, upholding uh, the virtue of a spiritual consciousness and at the same time excluding women and excluding blacks as being half or a quarter of a person. Yeah, and, and inconveniently ignoring the decimation of the uh, indigenous peoples as well and that they were in, inhabitants exactly. of this land as well. Thank, so there's a lot of shadow issues we've had to face. I mean, the truth is, and the, the, the great challenge and opportunity is, cultures only evolve so quickly. It's very hard to just make a big cultural leap. And so, you know, the, our, our founding fathers were products of Europe. They were products of European culture. It was very... Uh, the monarchies and rigid class classism. And so they made some big progress over what they'd inherited, but they didn't bring in the gender balance of the Mohawks. It's too big a leap. And slavery as well was part of the whole fabric of economic fra- fabric of colonialism. And then that got baked into the DNA. And a lot of founding fathers wanted to go beyond slavery, but there just wasn't the mandate at the beginning. So, you know, that that's the painful part of evolution is you, you, you got you to gotta compromise sometimes with how far you can get right now. We can't just create utopia like presto, change out of magic yes. thin air. You've got to build, build upon what's gone before. So, you know, they set the stage for – really, they set the stage for being able to evolve our country as quickly as, as, our, as our people could and as innovation could. And so then, it, you know, it took, took a while. I, taught, I used the metaphor in the book of upgrading the operating system, and I, I really see that we've gone through at least yes, six like that. major upgrades to our operating system as a country, each time ex- Expanding the compass of our care, extending more equality to more people, really, really taking better care of our whole society, while still keep maximizing freedom, maximizing justice, trying to trying to balance all these different competing energies to create a still more perfect union. So now it's really just the next level of that. We're having to deal with the you know the backlash and the the backlog of unprocessed stuff. I mean, slavery was we did not deal with slavery in the really heartfelt, profound, uh, soul-searching way that Germany dealt with the Holocaust, for instance. You know, we, they really did. They did a serious moral inventory. They baked it into 
school curricula. It became part of the uh, really a, a national mandate to come to terms with what was wrought in, in World War II. And I, I really feel like Germany has matured through that in many deep ways. And America hasn't mm-hmm. quite done the same level of soul searching as, as happened in Germany. And, and we're, we're paying for that with the, with the racial divides and the, and the riots and the, and the, the uh, different social oppression that, that so many blacks feel and the discrimination within criminal justice. It's really a lot of just unhealed legacy of slavery. So we got some cleanup to do. We got also have cleanup to do with the native peoples. I mean, some of the poorest counties in this country are on native reservations and uh, highest rates of addiction. And yet there's, there's incredible deep wisdom streams that, that were, it was a missed opportunity. If we would have, if we would have harmoniously blended with native culture rather than uh, dominated it, we could have actually become more balanced and whole more quickly and really fulfilled our potential more quickly. And that's really the opportunity is to learn from the indigenous people how to have a sacred relationship with the earth, how to really take care of the tribe, how to how to live in a more reverential relationship with the uh, the whole planet, and that that's important for us to really grow into true sustainability and a really harmonious culture. I think that's really well put, and uh, you're you're reminding me, uh, Stephen, of the beginning of my formation of a better world TV. Actually, it began with. Uh, back in 1993, when uh, Bill Clinton was just uh, elected. And uh, I did not vote for him. I was actually for Dr. John Hagelin, award-winning quantum physicist from Harvard University, uh-huh. who was running, running for guy. the National Law Party. Yes, I was one of his first advocates. <laughs> and um, Actually, Deepak Chopra was behind him and a few others because it was connected to the Transcendental Meditation Movement in Fairfield, Iowa. Uh, so he had my vote and my attention. But nonetheless, uh, he, of course, didn't win, and Bill Clinton did. So uh, you're reminding me in all that you just said so, so elegantly that I had, did my first show by reading a letter that I had written to President-elect Clinton, which stated that, look, you're a saxophone-wielding fellow. You, uh, I know you didn't inhale, but at least you, you held the, the pot in your fingers. <laughs> <and> you, were, <laughs> you were a bit of a peacenik. You grew your hair out. You, know, you were really for peace in Vietnam. Uh, you were not greatly outspoken about it, but it was clear that you were for peace. And uh, so, therefore, <clears throat> I'm going to say, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to take the leap of faith of getting behind you and supporting your presidency as a younger man than many. And to clean things up in our country and to make it great again. Sorry, Trump. Um, I used that phrase long before. Uh, I said the first order of business is because there is so much blood on this government's hands. I'm suggesting you reach out to the native peoples of Turtle Island, now the USA, and apologize deeply to them from the heart and ask for forgiveness even. And if they grant it, then ask if they would be kind enough for their elders to form a, a role in the cabinet, to play a role as an advisor to the White House so we can be aligned, both male and female, as you make that point so well in your book, and to guide us in a way that is more indigenously and environmentally sound, respecting the earth and Mother Nature. 
Well, I actually got a letter back, Stephen. It was a form letter, but I asked him to do that, and then I asked him to turn to the blacks and do the same thing, and the Latinos the same thing, and even the Chinese who were enslaved and the Japanese who were interned. And I asked him to, if you want to really form, if you want to clean up the karma and get our country on the road to greatness, these are the things that are needed. Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. Amen, brother. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Amen, brother. So, Absolutely. So really, really, all I've been doing is channeling my inner Mitchell. You're hilarious. I just tapped into your thought field, and uh, and <laughs> I'm sure I've got some novel ideas in the book as well. But I'm, but but it is true. Sure. Really, if you meditate deeply enough on these things, yeah. and you really do the inner work of of waking up from certain paradigms and understandings, then you start to see that. America, like like anybody who's grow, you know, grows up individually, we're going to push certain things in the shadows to really yeah. mature to a level of wise, integrated leadership. We got to do some shadow work, and America is no different. You know, our climb to uh, greatness as a great power has been littered with a lot of a lot of dead bodies and a lot of uh, bad deeds. You know, you read con- the confessions of an economic hitman and see what we've done yeah. with governments around the world. On it's really horrifying. But the thing is, what we have to do, and I always think this is so important, especially for those on the left, is we, when we look at the critiques and we look at the shadow side, we also have to do the deeper honoring. We have to be living in a, in a, a, a reverential love relationship with our country, because if we're just critiquing it, we create distance and separation from people who feel that genuine love. And it can be, yeah. yes, we need to look at the shadows. But we also have to remember what is beautiful and what is amazing and, and the generativity, the natural beauty of this country and the cultural beauty and the ways that we have led the way and broken through. And if we don't hold that at the same time, then it, then it can just get – it can turn us sour on, on our citizenship and get people disenchanted. And you see that so much on the left where people just like, well, it's all corrupt. I'm just going to take my marbles and go elsewhere. And that really hurts us when we disengage. Yeah. We have to take our citizenship seriously. We incarnated here for a reason. We incarnated to be part of evolving America to the next level. And yes, it's not as great as it could be tomorrow, but it's the only way it's going to get to that point is if each of us rolls up our sleeves and gets to work and really sees it as part of our spiritual work, not just as the inner work, but really the expression of that in the world. Beautifully put. I, I really agree with you, Stephen. I think it's a very important point that really does – as you say, get marginalized on the left, and it's a real problem. If that love isn't there at present uh, and the commitment that goes with it and recognize, as you say, a spiritual work, then who are we? You really have to ask, who are we? Mm-hmm. Uh, along the line of the novelty that you did bring forward in the book, that you do bring forward, uh, is your 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 America, would you lead us through, and then we'll, I'd like to move us into our more present-day context because we are in an election cycle. It's a very important year, and I'd like to look at left and right and Republican-Democrat and how we can help to bridge those divides, which you address in the book. But could you walk our audience first through, because I feel you hit some very salient points about U.S. history in your yeah looking at it as a uh, an evolving software program. Yeah, so I mean if you think of it each stage we're including more people and more perspectives in and and really extending the liberty and equality and justice for all that that is 
you know, we go through different phases of that. When we first created the country, it was on the Articles of the Confederation, which were frankly a disaster. There was no way to centralize the formation of a government through taxes. You know, interstate commerce was a mess. It was just kind of a big mess. And so the Continental Congress um, um, or the Constitutional Convention really emerged out of a, a recognition that one, the 1.0 version of America was a mess. It wasn't working. So we had to come up with a better federal system that would that would that would balance the powers of the of the federal government and the states rather than keep all the power for the states and so that's really part of the genius of the design is the the balancing of powers and the the separation of powers which creates certain checks and balances against corruption but you know that obviously there were some compromises built in we had slavery and three-fifths uh three-fifths of the person you know compromise and th- there was a, a way in which we really had uh, we had a very dark thing baked into our view that it was compromising equality and liberty, and so we had to go through uh, a very painful process of purging that in the form of uh, the Civil War, and after that we abolished slavery. That's really what I see as a 3.0 upgrade, 2.0 being the Constitution. So we get the mm-hmm. Constitution, Bill of Rights, and we go to the Civil War, and then we next we're really looked at, we're looking at women who I mean half our population disenfranchised, not a part of our democracy in a meaningful way. So they had to be reenfranchised. In 1920, we get there. Next, we're we're faced with the Great it's Depression, a big crisis, and and really people falling through the cracks, and and we're not taking care of our people and our elderly and and the destitute, and so massive pro, pro public programs that get people back to work and create a safety net. I really see that as the 5.0. 60s really offer a 6.0 where we're so in other words the new the, deal the new deal america new deal You're yeah new deal it. and then 6.0 you know, we're getting into civil rights women's movements there's a, there's a subtler work of, of building more equality into the system so that's more of a yeah. 6.0 now you know from 2000 ish to today we're really transitioning now into a truly global era the rise of the internet has forced that upon us we can't just close our doors and you know, put up a big wall and, and wall off the rest of the world. It's like we're interconnected on, on the Internet and media and finance and trade. We have to operate as a global country and really t- take seriously a kind of uh, love, a kind of patriotism that doesn't lead us to just be narcissistic and fo- focus only on ourselves. But we really see how interconnected we are into a global family. And so we move into a phase where we're really about global stewardship and leadership in the service of all, not just leadership in accumulating more wealth and benefit for ourselves, but in demonstrating how to create an enlightened society, one that's peaceful and sustainable and prosperous, and then helping the rest of the world do the same. Because ultimately, that's what's going to take to have, a, you know, really create a beautiful world. We can't, we can't just create a little walled garden here because whether it's diseases like Zika or Ebola or whether it's terrorism, it's like everything is permeable now. So we have to take care of the whole planet um, in, our, in our hearts and in our concerns. And so a global operating system, it starts to shift how we think about government too and different programs and sort of moving from you know, a focus on defense, which you can do when it's nation-centered, you have to move towards a different kind of orientation in a global area. You have to move towards peace as the primary mission. So I talk about shifting, up-leveling our mission from a war on terror, war on terror, to creating a world at peace. And you can rebrand the Department of Defense as the Department of Peace, and actually include more peace builders and conflict transformation people and educators and all of it takes to heal the wounds of the war of wars from millennia around the world because those are the things that fester and create the next problem so 
there's a great there's a new book by a guy named Mark uh, Nickleby who is a strategist uh, within the uh, I forget which branch of government but pretty high up there reporting to McMullen mm-hmm. um, uh, and he basically has written this book and it's all about sec- the nature of security has to change in a global era and so the new mm-hmm. grand strategies are creating creating uh, you know a healthier world is really at the at the foundation of creating security for our own future and so. There's a lot of shifts you have to make in our consciousness and our heart and then the actual design of how we do things. And so that's part of where this book is really aiming at is we're shifting into global consciousness, which means we have to re-embrace the entire human family, move out of our different tribal identities and move into this sense of global citizenship and global interconnection. And that, you know, and the way we make that real is by bridging the divides that there are. If we're a Democrat, we bridge the divides and make some Republican friends and read from that perspective, be able to to humanize them and connect with them in a deeper way. And that's one of the things I've mainly been talking about the book right now, because the polarized politics is so painfully um, regressive right now. It's really hamstringing us as a country. And so that's that's a serious symptom of the deeper disease. And we have to deal with that. Where we, where we actually meet in a space of recognizing and respecting each other's right to have different worldviews and, uh, and, and to work in a way that's collaborative ultimately rather than combative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very well put. Wow, that was, a, that was a summation of U.S. history like I've never heard before, you know, from 1.0 to 7.0. That was fantastic. It was like speed dial. But I like it because the computer metaphor is yeah. that we're, we're all used to upgrades of the operating system. And then you're sort of like, oh, of course. You know, any system, eventually exactly. you get bugs and breakdowns. And you got to upgrade to the next level. And, you know, it kind of puts a little context on it. Like, okay, well, we've got really a lot does. of bugs and breakdowns now. Wonderful. But, you know, we're, yeah. we'll, we'll eventually get to the next level. It's just a matter of how much pain we have to go through to get to that. Wonderful metaphor. Absolutely. We are speaking with the author of the book recently released, Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All, Stephen Dynan, who is very well known for his founding and being CEO of the Shift Network, a a worldwide, uh, basically an online service for providing training, classes, holistic in nature, consciousness and spirituality in nature, sustainability. It's a a beautiful and very well-received method of getting educated from your own home. And uh, Stephen, by the way, you've just done a brilliant work in putting that together as you have and sustaining it as well as you have for so many years. Uh, you are Thank listening you. To, you're so welcome. Uh, remember that you can, if you do not yet receive a Better World newsletter, it's for free, and you can get it simply by going to www.abetterworld.tv abetterworld.tv and become part of the Better World family and community. We're growing all over the world and uh, love for you to be part of it. So today's show is specifically all about creating a sacred America and regarding a sacred world from that point of view. And Stephen Dynan is the author of this book that I'd highly recommend you get and at this time get it because we're dealing with these issues that are staring at us every time we may turn on mainstream TV. That means if you're not watching a better world TV, and I'd recommend that ahead of CNN, but that's your choice. Um, But we're dealing with some very, very important issues here. 
which has to do with a revisioning and a reheartening, if you will, a re-enlightenment of our society. And Stephen has done a beautiful job in walking us through a journey that can help us to really, to really do that. I want to bring something up, Stephen, as you, in your last uh, piece, uh, you were making indirect reference, and of course I can read between the lines, to Representative Dennis Kucinich, who did propose many years ago at this point a Department of Peace to replace the Department of Defense. And for those of us who are uh, very language sensitive, understand the importance of the use of the word peace instead of defense when we want to talk about global issues or domestic for that matter. And it, it brings a different energy, a different vibration, if you will, into the conversation. And, uh, you know, I very much appreciate that uh, assertion of yours and, of course, of Dennis's back then. He's been on the show a number of times. And, uh, you know, I have always, he's one of those rare politicians who has uh, really stood up with virtues and values intact in the face of uh, tremendous odds. Um, yeah, I have, to, I have to give a fair amount of credit to Dennis for turning me on to a transformational politics in 2004. Uh, I got, he really, he really catalyzed a deep political awakening for me. I ended up putting on over a dozen events in California. We called them Kucinich Convergences and blended poetry and music and inspirational talks and really kind of set the template for this, full spectrum engagement with politics as heart and soul. And he, you know, he was speaking in, in this amazing language that that didn't ultimately penetrate through or people didn't take him out, take him as a fully credible candidate, but he did ignite something around the country oh, uh, around did. a different kind of politics. And I, you know, I definitely owe him a deep bow of gratitude for helping to ignite yeah. what has become the book. Oh God, you know, I, I so wish we knew each other better back then because, you know, I was so on that path. You know, I would have loved to help support what you were doing out there with Dennis. And I had, uh, I, I had something called Enlightened Politics Roundtable, uh, on which I invited, in, invited and had Dennis Kucinich, Ralph Nader, uh, former mayor of uh, Salt Lake City and presidential candidate in the Justice Party, Rocky Anderson, who I got very close to during that whole last election cycle, and Barbara Marks Hubbard, who I had wanted to introduce to Rocky because Dennis was unfortunately sort of uh, edged out politically, and I wanted her to know for the evolutionary leaders and everyone else in California that she's connected with to um, kind of get behind Rocky, who is a brilliant, beautiful man, true humanitarian back in 2012. So hmm. I very much appreciate, and you know, I'll send you that uh, a link for that because I think you'd probably very much enjoy it. She loved him, by the way. She, she really, I was so pleased. <laughs> I was like mission accomplished. You know, I forged that, helped to forge that relationship. And, uh, but you've been on this path doing this, and I, I just so wish we were connected at that time. So I could have been of some yeah. support, could have been of mutual support well, to each other. But it's just a pleasure to connect now. And, and you know, I, I think really that is. It, there's been a lot of eruptions of this, this higher consciousness meets uh, politics, different waves. And I, I feel really blessed that many of them have, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and people who have pioneered this pathway for a while. And, you know, I yes. think it's important that we bear in mind that it's not just about electing 
the candidates, because a lot of times the candidates oh. haven't won necessarily, but it is shifting the consciousness. It's bringing perspectives into, into the debate that then open us to new possibilities that then expand the conversation and that then influence oftentimes the people who do get elected. You know, whether that's, you know, Gene Houston having a big influence on Hillary Clinton at one point or, you yes. know, the, or Dennis exactly. Kucinich, I noticed that a lot of, even though he didn't win the nomination uh, in 2004, different people would start to pick up on his ideas in, in the debates and he would start to shift the narrative a bit. And so there's this kind of subtler way of working on politics. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in a, under illusion that any of the mainstream um, candidates are suddenly going to start using the kind of language I do in, in uh, sacred America, sacred world. However, yeah. I do know that already Hillary Clinton has personally received a copy of a picture of it. Somebody brought one to oh, her and just yesterday, somebody brought one to Barack Obama, um, actually to one of his senior staffers in the white house. And, and so he's supposed to be getting one soon. So, you know, Wonderful. they may or may not flip That's through really it. Maybe deal. they'll gain a little inspiration, take one idea, but if it just helps to, spark one new possibility it's like that can have a really big impact so and that's just you know that's just me taking my stand and and any way any one of us has the power to to nudge things in the country in the better direction and <laughs> yeah. it can happen in a very it can happen yeah. in a very organic local way where we improve our community it can happen through building uh, a bridge of of engaged uh engaged citizenship and actually actively lobbying and advocating uh, with our congressional representatives. It can be about convening circles of people who are interested in moving the whole uh, political culture to the next level. And all these things that basically democracy evolves through little bumps from a lot of different people. And we're, we have to keep yeah. bumping it in the, to, up to the next level and uh, be patient with that and work with as many people as we can. But truth is, instead of feeling the action the actions are really important because otherwise we can feel disempowered if we're like, well, it's such a big system and it's too daunting. I'm just going to go back to creating my nice little, my nice little bubble world here and not worry about the political situation. But that basically turns it over to less conscious actors with less uh, enlightened motives about serving our society. And that's really problematic, not just for us individually, but it's problematic for our country and it's problematic for our planet. So, you know, we got to get in there we got to say, be happy with little nudges <laughs> and to work yeah. together to make those little nudges happen. As the Chinese said, the greatest journey starts with the first step, you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, honestly, uh, almost 20 years ago, and I, I removed the uh, link on my website for a while um, called Participatory Democracy. And I honestly had never heard that phrase before. And, um, I, as someone who have been on a who's been on a spiritual path for many years, largely Eastern traditions, but not only, uh, felt that it was so important to kind of get off the cushion and get into action and into the boardrooms and into politics. That that's our spiritual mandate um, and purpose was to actually uh, create the proper art of governance which is fair-minded, that's win-win, that's kind, and that's generous, frankly, and, of course, always eco-friendly, you know, and um, I feel that there's very much a way to do that, and I feel your book is really helping to articulate that path, and one that you'll learn about that I've been writing for some time called Sacred Stewardship, Awakening the Soul to Act. Oh, really? Yeah, so you're, so you're uh, in on the, I, I feel like sacred is such a great word because it, it is a great it is. unifier. It's not exclusive to any tradition. 
It connects exactly. with the native roots because of the sacred relationship with all of creation. Sure. But it, it, it's something Absolutely. even a scientist can hold truth as Appreciate sacred. That. It doesn't really imply That's a belief true. system or a specific deity, but it's more like a, it's, it's a deep, no. heartfelt, loving relationship with life. Exactly. Exactly. It's very, very foundational, you know. And uh, I, I actually, I don't want to say how many years ago I started working on that, um, and I've discussed it with Andrew Harvey because it was distinct from sacred activism as much as I uh, love and adore him and the work of sacred activism. It's, I, I felt that the notion of stewardship was sort of a kind of a grander, broader, uh, more intimate, loving relationship to the earth and to life itself, to the life force. Mm. And I don't know. Just, I like it. It just suits me. You know, it just suits me. Yeah, and I think others have reacted, uh, responded favorably. But I want to come back to our current situation because we talk about bumps in the road. That's uh, a little bit, uh, you know, with all due respect, of a, a pious gloss on a very, very entrenched system with which we're dealing. And we saw that show up in, of all places, Brooklyn, New York, with 120,000-plus people being dis- removed from the voting rolls, and many of whom were Latinos, many of whom would have been voting for Bernie Sanders, and they literally got off, knocked off temporarily, and then reinstated after the vote, after the election. Something similar happened in Nevada. Something similar was also said to have happened in Ohio. So what we're dealing with is a highly testosterone-charged, aggressive, illegal, oftentimes illegal, and certainly, no matter what, unethical use of our system, abuse of our system. So right now we have two seeming presumptive candidates, it's not official, that um, are in both cases, especially on the Democratic side, there's serious question as to the legitimacy of her candidacy. And I just would like to hear how you would speak to some of the issues that have been showing up over the last several months. There's a lot in there to unpack. Um, I, I'm, I have I have some hesitations over going too deep into that because I think it's more it's more important at this point to focus on what unifies us and in a way the the journey to a healed America because when when things get very um, contentious and polarized what happens is you basically start just focusing on whatever the negatives are so you know I I, I thought it was great that that Bernie was in the race I gave him money I early know. on but. Ultimately, I come down as a, as a Hillary supporter, but I'm also not a Trump hater. I, I don't think he should be president, but I also there I'm not going to go to war with him or trash him the way a lot of people are. I feel I like part of it, part of it is modeling a more a healthy discourse. And you know, I, I I was I was heartened to see that 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 Bernie came to the place of seeing, you know, honoring uh, Hillary. She did you know, she did win several million more votes. There there were discrepancies and issues in the election. I don't know that those were quite as systematically like, you know, orchestrated against against Bernie necessarily. I feel like at the very at the end of the day, Bernie did a lot to stir up people's passions and to stir and to and to activate an expanded vision of our future, which is a great service. And it and it almost gave uh, Hillary cover in certain ways to move more towards her progressive roots. She actually has 
has pretty strong progressive roots more so than bill in many ways and and it in a way like helped to helped her to to build into the platform some things that she probably really believed in but wasn't necessarily sure there was enough of a mandate for and uh and i think he's he's articulated some really powerful visions and so i think at the end of the day sort of going back and kind of you know analyzing who did what or which blow here um i feel like i feel like on the deepest level, I think it's time for a woman president, and I think that's part of the rebalancing of the historical scales, and I think it's going to lead to subtler shifts in our national psychology than we can even anticipate. The thing with Hillary is that she's generally she's generally disliked when she's running for something, but she's generally very respected once she has a job. So whether she's a senator or a uh, secretary of state, people actually think she does a great job, and even people who didn't used to like her. So I feel like when she's in the in office, she would do her best to do a really good job for the nation. So that's, at the end of the day, what I think is the most important thing. Um, you know, and so uh, I, that's where I stand on, the, on that whole situation. And, um, yeah, and in terms of Trump... The way I see Trump right now, I don't I don't have the same reaction to him as I did to certain Republican leaders in the past. And I also feel like there's um, like I've matured in my relationship to the Republican Party. I'm going to go to Cleveland. So this is the, this was the next question and point I wanted to raise, which I enjoyed in your book. I felt that is very uh, you raised some very mature points in, in where you're going yeah. right now. Please, please lay it out. Yeah, so I feel like it's more about building allies and friendships. So, you know, I, I reached out to Republican leaders to to get their feedback on the book and ultimately their endorsement. Rich Toffel is the founder of the Log Cabin Republicans. He had some strong critiques of the way that I had portrayed conservatives. And I really got him on the phone, took in his feedback, made changes. And, uh, and ultimately, he became a strong endorser. And we're looking at doing potential events together in the future. I also, M- Michael Osterlink of the Liberty Coalition, Next week, I'm speaking at the, the Purple Tent, and I'm going to be on a panel with Grover Norquist. I'm looking forward to get, giving him a book and building a friendship with him if I can. It's because it's really – you've got to build friendship well, what is the purple before tent? you find oh, no. the, the opportunity. Hmm? What is the Purple Tent? It's a great initiative that um, a man named Stuart – what's his last name? Musinski or something like that, who's, who's mm-hmm. a Ohio native had to to create a purple tent, you know, red plus blue equals purple. To, oh, got it. To create okay. a tent that is really about a transpartisan perspective on how do we evolve our democracy. Very aligned oh. with a lot of the principles I talk about in the book, very aligned with what we're going to be doing with the American Citizen Summit in August, which is going to be very transpartisan. We have people from, from Gavin Newsom to Grover Norquist speaking, a lot of pioneers of this pathway of transpartisanship. The important thing to remember with transpartisanship is that you don't have to – you don't have to let go of your core ideology. You can still be a progressive transpartisan, but you're committed to a deeper way of engaging that's more respectful, that ultimately sees and honors the, the divinity in others, that, that respects that everybody's got a right to their, their opinion, and that we, that we create better solutions by working together. And sometimes political diversity creates more uh, better solutions than just a single party approach anyway. So, so transpartisanship, you can be a bet, you can still be partisan, but you're doing so in a way that's evolutionary rather than destructive, which so much of the partisanship is now. And so, I'm really interested. I'm going to, I'm, you know, I think there's some interesting um, kinds of activism that are more unifying that are going on. There's a woman I'm staying with in Cleveland who is part of this, uh, creating a, a hug across Cleveland. So they have a 
I do a half an hour of silence. All these different churches are coming together to basically, or it's called circle the city with love. So they're creating this whole field of love rather than a protest. It's like, let's, let's raise the vibration here. And they're also yeah. offering free, free cuddling to any, uh, any delegate to the, the RNC. <laughs> and which, which is great, which is a great way to approach it. Rather, it's, to, it's, it's to approach it through does. love rather yeah. than antagonism. And we've kind of, I think, part of what happened, because we had a, a violent revolutionary war, which I think may not have been necessary. In fact, it, it might have been better for America's character to evolve out, evolve nonviolently in, into uh, independence from Britain rather than violently, yeah. because it, it, baked, it baked in a certain belief that in order to get change, we got to force it on people. And, yeah. and so that creates a more antagonistic culture and people get more dug in. Well, so you're not going to force me to change and I'm not going to force, I don't want your change. And then you were just shouting at each other because it becomes a power struggle rather than a real we exploration. We you know, we needed Gandhi yeah. a couple of hundred years before. Yeah. Well, and Gandhi, what he did is demonstrate, it's like the Indians were not going to overpower the British firearms. You know, they couldn't overpower them militarily. But what they could do was to to engage them in a way that elevated the consciousness of the British. And so then they voluntarily wanted to step away. It takes a little more patience, but ultimately it's more powerful in the long term. And that's part of why I say, you know, let's, we need an American evolution now where there's really no enemy, where we're all on the same team helping to grow a better America rather than an American revolution where we're, somebody's trying to overthrow somebody else all the time and ultimately trying to shove their diversion of change down, down your throat. And it might be the Tea Party version. It might be the Bernie Sanders version, whatever. Sometimes it just gets, yeah. it gets too, it's, it, it's not listening to other people and it's not working with other people. So I'm going to go to Cleveland. I want to build some friends rather than make some protests and, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately yeah. try to, try to create um you know i got i do i navigate a lot by inner guidance and i just got really strong guidance that i needed to build more connections into republican leadership and that that's actually a more effective way to create change than just to yeah. you know hang out and write from afar but you know to, to really get in there roll up my sleeves and 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 help to see this american evolution by by finding the people who who are open enough and that that are, are ready to to commit to a kind of a transpartisan perspective and, and process. So I feel like that's otherwise we're just going to keep getting torn apart and it's going to be an ugly bloodbath this year with Trump and going at Hillary and everybody's, you know, everybody's followers hate the other ones. They're most disliked candidates in history. It's just going to get worse, I think. So coming in with more of a healing impulse to hold the higher ground, to really rebuild the fabric of trust, to build new alliances rather than, just uh, just throw our weight around and create more enemies. But we need more people who are doing that. And so I, that's that's what, what I want to be is I want to be one of the people who's helping bring us back together. And that means, you know, that means getting beyond my own biases. In 2008, I, you know, I, I could not stand Sarah Palin. I took it on as a practice to see if I could find the place of dignity and respect and um, and real human connection with her. And I read both her books and it was a yeah. good journey. It, just, it softened yeah. things, it opened things. At the end of the journey, I had a dream in which we hugged in the dream. It was very sweet. And I wrote an article called uh, Dissolving the Palin Prejudice, which my progressive <laughs> friends were totally nice. outraged by. But, but conservatives yeah. sent me a lot of uh, fan mail because they felt seen and respected in a way they often didn't yeah. by progressives. And, and, and when people feel seen and respected, it brings out the best in them, whether, whether you're progressive or conservative. So the more we can do that to really meet people on their own terms, honor their right to have different opinions and different values and priorities. 
and to say, you know what, let's, let's find those places of common ground. Let's find the places where we meet as human beings. And who knows? It's like, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to befriend Grover Norquist and see what's, see what's possible there. Yes. You're making a number of really good, strong points, Stephen, and I, I want you to know I really appreciate them. And uh, one of them is that this idea of Republican and Democrat, you know, this has gotten very blurred over the years, too, the, the definitions of these two. I mean, the irony is that, of course, it was the Republicans, started by Lincoln, that were the much more liberal party. They were the a party of peace. Yeah and supporting the abolition of slavery. And the Democrats had their heels dug in on the opposite pole, you know. And yes, over time, things shifted and, and, and repolarized in the other direction. But, you know, they're all corporatized. They're all kind of receiving their money from the same corporations. That's something that we haven't talked about. We're not going to have time to go into any depth right now, but uh, the corporatization of our government and of both parties, uh, the uh, deliberate exclusion of other parties, be it green or libertarian for that matter, is a very sore wound, I think, for anybody who really is paying attention to the larger picture. And I think that we need to while I want to emphasize love and unity, I also don't want to skim over the very serious entrenchment of money and corporations in our body politic. It's no longer exactly our government as such. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court supported that in um, um, you know, Citizens United. And uh, we've got yeah. a lot of I, – I, I so appreciate – your perspective. I feel it's very rich. And one of the points, you know, but I, I also want to bring what I'm saying to bear. I think it needs to be part of a, a very sober conversation. And at the same time, your point about, re, we call it reaching across the aisle. In some ways, you can't tell the difference between Democrat and Republican. And ironically, this whole thing with Trump, that Trump has been a Democrat all of his life. He's grown up with New York Jews in the real estate industry, okay? And it's all very Democrat. And he changed relatively recently over for any number of reasons, sort of like Michael Bloomberg did running for mayor of New York City. He was also a long-term Democrat for various political and perhaps expedient reasons. They both switched. And I have no problem with that. I don't really care what the party is. I don't vote party. I vote person. That's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's so interesting, just for the sake of fun and irony, that I personally see that there are a number of parallels more between Trump and Bernie Sanders, for instance, in their position about trade, than Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And in some ways, they're from the same, not quite tribe, but there's a New York culture, a kind of a liberalized culture, progressive thinking culture that they're both from. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, it was a lot to unpack in unpack in there. I had a, a more of a funny thought when you're first talking about this. You know how you know the Republican Party first started off as more liberal and abolishing slavery, and uh, you know did you ever read the Dr. Seuss uh, comic book where the star-bellied sneech, the sneeches where they would have this big no. machine that would put stars on the belly, and then they would go through a machine and then the, then it would remove the stars and became higher prestige to have the stars and then became not to have the stars. So they kept <laughs> rotating like stars on their bellies. And it was just kind of a parody of how whatever identity we create, we always think it has to be superior to the others. And then we often end up recycling the same things over and over. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I do think that there's there is a truth in that, that that that, um, you know, we, we can shift our these identities around. But a lot of the yeah. deeper dynamics are still in place where we're antagonistic, even though we, you know, it's ultimately not not grounded in sort of a long term set of the same values. Um, yeah, in reality, I'm, I am with you that, you know, I think one of the biggest threats to our democracy is the distortion that comes from lobbyist uh, influence and excessive money, and particularly the amount of time anybody who's running for office has to spend fundraising. It's uh, in Congress, I think it's averaging almost four hours a day now. And it's like, if you had to do your day job and raise four hours, a day, you're not gonna do a very good job in terms of thinking about, you don't even have time to think about enough time to think about the priorities of, of how do we design really good policy? Cause you're just oh, having you to, you know, yeah. just manage the demands of fundraising. So I think that's one of the things that should be bipartisan or transpartisan higher ground is that we need to overturn citizens united with the constitutional amendment. I do talk about that in the book. That's really foundational. Yeah. It's also some like high level, you know, distortions in, in, in that are, that are polluting our democracy in that way. Some of the ger- gerrymandering, we need more neutrality there. There's, bunch of things that kind of balance balance out that are you know practical reforms um i do think there's one thing i want to challenge what you're saying is that there's a tendency on the left is to demonize corporations and there's a way that that can start to slide into corporations equals bad whereas what we really need to do now i think is liberate the engine of capitalism for the greater good which which is what through conscious capitalism or triple bottom line business or enlightened business so that requires being pro-money, pro-business, but with the right uh, ground rules and the right incentives values. to really lead to the greater good. And so I do go into a bunch of areas in Sacred America, Sacred World, where you can, you, we can say, how do we tweak the engine of capitalism to make it better for the whole world and better for the community and more sustainable? And how do we make it more transparent of the real impacts of our buying decisions so that as consumers, we can have instant feedback. It's going to this whole idea of conscious ratings tags, which yeah. basically rate corporations on different variables and that we can see that on a just I know like the same way we have nutritional facts. Like yeah, no, I agree. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, challenged by that because I completely agree with you. I have been a, 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 uh, an advocate of humanizing the corporation and the corporation is just a piece of paper in a drawer so that's actually a fairly meaningless thing that i even put out so uh, pardon me for that but i believe that <laughs> it you know it's really you know we talk about the corporation but that's just an impersonal phrase that's just a legal vehicle what we're really talking about is people and that's another good point to make actually when it comes to government all it is is people and people can be moved in the heart and the mind they can be transformed and if they're not too fixated and too habituated we both have studied neuroscience and neuropsychology we understand that shifts happen 
and there are ways of inspiring that. And I feel that a lot of the work that you've put into your uh, energy in your book is broadcasting that. And I very much appreciate that part of the picture yeah. that we're dealing yeah. with people and we're there's not hiding behind corporate veils. There's how can we make the world a better place for everybody? And at the end of the day, everyone really does have a heart. And most people have children. And if they don't, they can imagine what it's like to have children and want them to have clean air and fresh water and quality food and a good lifestyle, but a world that works for all. So, I, you know, honestly, we are very much attuned Amen. to that. Okay, but Amen. then again, and it really takes it, it takes all of us, and it takes all of, all the different yeah. political perspectives too to get there. And I think that's one thing we've got to bear in mind. We didn't talk as much about it, but I really I've come to see that you know every different political position adds potential creative ideas to how do we grow this more mature, healthy, and wise, and peaceful and prosperous society. And so you know the, I think that each of us. Can, if we're humble about what we what we don't know and what we could learn from other people, we we end up making a lot exactly. more progress. I've, I've 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 learned a lot from different conservatives who really taught me how to be a better business person. I think a lot yeah. of those uh, us in the new conscious movement and progressive movements can can afford to be better capitalists, and that's actually good. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, and, and you know you're also highlighting something else. I'm I'm picking up in listening to you speak is a a point that is just overlooked too much that people get invested in being right and righteous self-righteous about putting other people down and it is a bit of a pathology quite honestly and it's i hear that like what you were describing about hugging a delegate you know and all that you're planning in cleveland is very much a new wave of energy toward kindness and uh, more reasonableness between otherwise apparently divisive and opposite parties. In other words, as we say in New York, forget about it. Forget about it. Go <laughs> for about you it. Know? Go for what brings <laughs> us together, not for what separates. Because what the world looks like today is what happens when we focus on the separation. What we want yeah. is actually very different than that. So, yeah, and to respect that the separation is also a source of creativity. So it's the unity and diversity. Just we can't forget either side of the equation. It's respect the diversity, honor the diversity, learn from the diversity, but also remember the oneness or otherwise it all falls apart. Exactly. Uh, listen, I, I actually have another call, I have another call that and I'm supposed to jump yes, on right exactly. now. Yes, exactly. We are finishing. The hour. Absolutely. We were just, I was just about, I just brought up, I went to our website, A Better World, and I brought up the fact that tomorrow night, You'll be speaking in New York City at the Alchemist's Kitchen through Evolver at 21 East 1st Street. I wanted to let everyone know that. So, uh, Stephen Dynan, just thank you so much for your good work and being a guest on the show today and uh, all that you're bringing forth. I so greatly appreciate it. Truly a delight. Great to, great to go deep with you as a, as a brother in this work. Thank you, Mitchell. Exactly. Bless you, my friend. We will continue all right. this discussion. Okay. And okay, I'll see you soon for America.net or uh, buy it at Amazon or one of your indies locally. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. We'll thanks so much. You got Bye. it. Stephen Dynan, 
author of Sacred America, Sacred World. Again, I want to just say what I just shared with you. The Alchemist Kitchen tomorrow night, if you are anywhere near New York City or in it, of course, uh, at 6 to 7.30 p.m., a conversation very much like we just had, but uh, without all the uh, interference that I put forward here. He will speak directly, <laughs> and uh, you ought to look into this. And it's on our website at abetterworld.tv, and through our newsletter, we have listed a link to Amazon for his book, which I uh, greatly, greatly recommend. If you go to our abetterworld.tv and click on the link that says newsletter, or just on the left-hand column, it's sitting right there next to the Jimmy Stewart It's a Wonderful Life image. <laughs> You'll recognize it. Anyway, uh, I really very much appreciated uh, what Stephen had to share with us all today. I feel his work is, uh, is landmark. It really is. It's um, moving the conversation in a way that we're very much accustomed to uh, quibbling about things. And uh, look, I do reiterate the importance of very soberly looking at the damage that has been done, how the wounds got created, who is and who has been behind the creating of those wounds, and serious, serious destruction and straying from the path of what the vision of this country originally was and needs to be renewed and re-envisioned. Uh, Stephen's book is really doing that in many ways. There's this subtle part of human nature that, as I was saying just before Stephen went, loves to be right. And guess what? I'm included in that. And my knowledge base is, you know, it's not small. And so I have a lot of things I can be right about And uh, uh, when it comes to people like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or the other players, including Bernie Sanders, who I very much love, adore, and respect. Um, I have been very vocal here on these airwaves about the flaws in his international, I will say, understanding, or certainly affinities, including with Saudi Arabia. This is madness. Um, Saudi Arabia has hung more people in their town square than ISIS ever has, and yet they are considered to be a close ally of the United States of America. So there are these hypocrisies that are deep-rooted in our culture, economic culture as well as political, that need to be uprooted. And I am not interested in skimming over them at all. And at the same time, coming from a deeper place of not just making wrong because that just breeds more of the same, as I feel Stephen was very much asserting and implying in his words and in his book. That doesn't advance the action. But what does is reconciliation. What does is deep listening. An eye toward and an intent of conflict resolution of people coming together with a common goal, a common purpose, with common values. That's why I actually named my radio and television show and organization A Better World. I felt that that was a, a confluence point, 
a place of crossroads, of meeting, of people of all different walks of life, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We could all agree that we want a better world and that we share certain fundamental, humane, eco-friendly, eco-sensitive values that if we rely on them as the steps toward peace in a world that works, to quote Werner Erhard's great phrase from way back, it can work. And honestly, that is clearly where I see Stephen Dynan coming from, even though I feel inside sometimes the upset, injustice, and of corruption, lies, etc., that are populating our airwaves, our common mainstream airwaves. And it deeply upsets me, and it deeply offends me, and I'm not going to make believe about that at all. At the same time, I have to recognize the limits of that conversation and create a new one. And in his book, Sacred America, Sacred World, I feel that Stephen is very much doing that. And as do I on this very same radio show and station. Every week we have conversations for possibility of embracing what works, of coming up with creative solutions, sacred stewardship. You know, the book I've written and the articles I've written for Huffington Post and for my A Better World newsletter very much enunciate these principles, these values, these worldviews, these perspectives. I also look at, as you know, the science, if you will, behind the way the mind works and the way the brain works and the way the soul works, too. And uh, where do we kind of drop off and where do we disappear and how can we reappear and show up in a meaningful, declarative way toward creating a better world and uh, a sacred world, truly. So I want to just thank you all for listening and joining me today for today's show. I I so enjoyed speaking with Stephen Dynan. He's done so much to be in service, and I think that's the space and the place from which to come at this most important engaging. And while we see so much strife, so much pain in our world, between races right here in our country, between economic classes. It's, in fact, one of his chapters is on the Occupy movement, um, looking at the economic divide. But bringing thought to it, bringing sense to it, not demonizing, that's my point. That really doesn't get us anywhere, even though we have that tendency as human beings, that self-righteous tendency. It really does not work, and we have to find a deeper place inside ourselves from which to come to, in fact, create a better world. I want to remind you all that the Better World Foundation Unlimited, Inc. is a 501c3. We thrive on your kind, generous donations, or as Lynn Twist would put it, your investment in a better world, and you're helping us, helps us serve you 
that's the circle of it all. So thanks again, and you can make a donation either by going to our website, but for anything that would be over $500, uh, please just uh, give me a call at 212-420-0800 directly or to the email address mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, and also for your feedback, your comments. Always so appreciated. It helps me do my job better, and it helps me uh, navigate the ship. So thanks again, Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.